So there are many causes, many potential causes for anxiety and worry. Let me, uh, not to dogpile on what you may already be feeling, maybe I'm just reminding you of what you're already worried about. Uh, here are some potential causes. One, of course, would be terrorism. Uh, we did just observe an anniversary of 9-11 this past week, and that is a reality that is very much tragically with us. COVID-19, the physical, emotional, relational, economic consequences of that pandemic. Cultural decline, whether you are on the left or on the right or in the muddled middle, whatever your perspective may be, everyone seems to be in agreement. You may not agree what, 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 what the decline is caused by and what, how you might describe it, but very few would say things are great. Uh, here's another one. FOMO, F-O-M-O, right? Fear of missing out. The angst, the pain, the worry, the anxiety of you, of any, someone, someone possibly being able to have fun without you around. And uh, that, of course, is exacerbated by this, social media, and it is uh, in, indicated and expressed all the more in our neurotic need to constantly check social media. FOMO. Let me give you another one. I made this one up, but it's true. Phone me. F-O-N-M-I. Fear of not making it. Fear of not making that. Now, this, is in a, this particular little anxiety sits within the camp of the believing Christian community and, and subsets therein. Worry, terror, anxiety of backsliding, of falling away, of chucking the faith, and being forever forgotten. Now, let me say two things to that. One, we ought not to do that. Two, because of the Lord's grace, we ought not to worry about it. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. The Lord intends to set us free and set us free indeed. Psalm 125, we are pressing on in this series through the Songs of Ascents. This is moving on through this, this series. We're kind of still in the early part of that, not quite midway. Uh, Psalm 125, verses 1 to 5. Hear now the Word of God. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in hearts, in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You. You know our hearts better than we do. You know our anxieties, fears, and worries better than we do, for You know not only how they express themselves, but the, their deep roots. 
And really, uh, the solution to any and all of that can only be found in you. Our greatest fears, our greatest worries, ultimately, and whatever they may be, ultimately are answered in the gospel, in your sure and secure love for us. And that is good news. And we ask that you would ground us in that more deeply than ever before, because can we just say this so boldly because of this little bit of time we're spending here on this Sunday morning, on this muggy, cloudy day in the midst of a Tennessee September, we ask for your Spirit's work, even in our midst, to change our poor hearts. And we pray in your name. Amen. If you want to know what it feels like to experience the balloon ride from up, remember the Pixar movie? Just ask the illusionist David Blaine. Some of you may have seen this just a week or two ago. Uh, Blaine got a hold of, well, it wasn't like it was random, it was obviously well-planned, 50 good-sized helium balloons, which carried him up almost five miles over the Arizona desert, and there it was streamed live on YouTube, and there he hung for, I don't know, two, three hours, I think it was. Eventually, he skydived and parachuted down to the ground. And I got to thinking, not just that's insane, but wow, that kind of reminds me of some other daredevil-type stunts uh, from, from years gone by, and sometimes you still read about such things today. In, in particular, uh, those who would walk a tightrope in crazy places without a net. I think it was in 1973, I can't remember the name of the guy, he was a, he was a Frenchman, who walked a tightrope, obviously without a net, between the Twin Towers in New York City. The night before, he and his friends got, uh, got up to one tower, and then the other set got to the other tower, and they, they shot an arrow, and that's how they got the line across. And he was later arrested, of course, but uh, came, became something of a folk hero. Uh, there, there have been records also uh, of folks who've done similar type things, walking the tightrope over crazy spaces without the net, over active volcanoes. My favorite, you're not going to get me to try it, but my favorite is walking the tightrope without the, the net between two hot air balloons while in flight. It's been done. It's documented. You can look it up. Now, I got to thinking about that because, sadly, this is how many people think of the Christian life. You know, with a, just an, enough luck and, and enough determination, I know it's precarious, I know it's scary, but I just might make it across. I just might make it across. Friends, that is not just a mistaken view, a tragically mistaken view. It inevitably, if it doesn't take much to imagine why this would be, is ultimately a paralyzing way to live. If that would mean what it is to follow Jesus, and it certainly is not. And Psalm 125 points us in completely the other direction, a truer direction. Now, as I alluded to earlier, this is one of the songs of ascents. This is part of that larger collection that was put together as, as a compendium such that the people of God, these pilgrims, as they made their way to the temple there in Jerusalem, would have something to both express their hearts and shape their hearts, and that is true really in, in, a, in a beautiful way for us still today. That's what these songs are for, to give us something as we're making our way 
on our journey, this journey of faith, something that would both shape our hearts, express our hearts, because the reality is there are still many dangers, toils, and snares that we have to be mindful of and aware of. And they're not just on the outside, but they're on the inside as well. We need these songs. Oh, we need this song, these songs. And this one in particular has a very straightforward and powerful, beautiful message for us this morning. And it is simply this. We are safe in the Lord's care. Safer than we have ever known. We are safe in the Lord's care. And so we need to live out of that. Not just talk about it, not just think about it, not just maybe journal about it, not just sing about it, but live out of it. We are safe in the Lord's care, and we need to know what it is and to grow in what it is to live out of that. Now, what would that look like? What would that mean to live out of such care? Well, to get at that, we're going to drill down into three things. And if you've got your outline, you can see it's the three points there in outline. We need to drill down and consider what, what is this first, this immovable mountain that is being spoken of here? And second, what is this broken scepter that is being spoken of here? And then thirdly, who are these praying people that we read of here as well? So those three things, the immovable mountain, the broken scepter, and the praying people, all three together help us to see something of what it means to live in light of God's good, great, safe care of us, His people. All right, first, the immovable mountain. What on earth is that all about? Let's look at it again, verses 1 and 2. The opening salvo of the psalm. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Uh, This is an image of security. This mountain, a very real mountain, it stands firm. It's not going in. The the, the Mount Zion, a a literal mountain, and God's people, it's the imagery here, stand firm. They are, it is secure. It is this elevated place there in Israel where Jerusalem is, where the temple sits. Uh, This is Mount Zion, this elevated place. It is the destiny, excuse me, the destination of these pilgrims as they're singing. You can imagine, so we're singing about this place to which we're going. That is elevated And somehow, the image is supposed to tell us something about ourselves and the Lord's care for us. Standing firm, it says. Why? Because it is surrounded. It stands firm because it is surrounded. Now, just from a military tactician standpoint, a city can't have a better position than to be surrounded by mountains. Okay? And that's exactly what this geographic site is. Ge- the geography and the topography is meant to inform our theology. Get your maps out. Okay? The geography and the topography is meant to inform something of our theology and the security because the Lord tells us Jerusalem is surrounded and so too is His people, not by mountains but by the Lord Himself. And therein we are secure. And our hope is unshakable because because of Him. We are unshakable. Uh, The security. The security. Let's go to the next point. The security of the secured. 
Who's being spoken of here? Now, we, we need to be straight on this, and we need to be honest and, and clear on this. It's not everyone that's being described this way, right? You can see that in the, in the opening lines. This is not a promise. This is not an assurance that's given to those who have no heart for God. This is not a promise and not an assurance uh, to those who follow Him and would serve Him when it's convenient or when there's no cost. That is not who's being spoken of here. He's speaking of those who trust in Him, who are leaning into Him with all that they are for this life and the next. Using New Testament language, he is not speaking here, as James does, of the double-minded, but as Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount of the pure in heart. Those who trust in the Lord, those who love Him and fear Him and know Him, that to them the assurance is given, the security is promised. It's the security of the secured the security of the secured. And to them, at like Mount Zion, they are like an immovable mountain. Now, let me come back to that. You may have picked up on some strange phrasing I just threw out there. The security of the secured. That was intentional. Um, we trust and persevere in that trust only because we are preserved. We trust, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're one of His disciples, your trust and your perseverance in that trust is only there. This past week, how did you not chuck your faith? You know how? God's grace. You know how you won't this week? God's grace. Not your gumption. Not because you tried harder. Okay? It's God's grace. Our sole preserver like a spiritual life preserver, God's grace. We trust and persevere in that trust only because of His preserving grace. Uh, keep your thumb there in Psalm 125. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. Paul speaks of this. It's funny. It's, it's, he, it's, it's almost like a throwaway. He says it so, so quickly here. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You, you could almost miss it. And he, but he's writing to this church in Philippi. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is saying here is that what God, unlike us in our hobbies and our projects at home, and all the stuff you have laying around in your garage... What God starts, He always finishes. What God starts, He always finishes. Which means if you have saving faith, you will never lose it. And if you've lost it, you never actually had it. Okay? These are the implications of these realities that we see here very clearly in the Scriptures. Now, this is not to say, don't mishear me. Don't you hear me say what I'm not saying. This is not saying that a Christian cannot have a radical, serious fall. That is not what this is saying. This is saying that a true Christian because of God's grace, can never have a total final fall. 
Okay? We need to be very clear on that. The Puritans used to speak of the reality of the dark night of the soul. That's real. In the age of the Puritans and in our day today, in our day today, it is God's grace. It is, this is, we're not speaking here of our strength being the ultimate thing. We're not speaking here of our faithfulness to Him being the ultimate thing here. We are speaking of His faithfulness to us. And that is our sole hope. Not our faithfulness to Him, His faithfulness to us. We persevere because He preserves. That's the only reason. It's the only reason. So friends, this and don't misunderstand, this is not grounds for presumption or arrogance on our part. Well, okay, if He's going to preserve me, then whatever. No, 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 no. You're not hearing it. This is not grounds for presumption or arrogance. This is grounds for praise and assurance. We are safe in the Lord's care. Oh, we need to be learning what that means to live out of that. That's the first thing we see with this immovable mountain. Let's press on to the second thing. This broken scepter. This broken scepter. That's in verse 3. Well worth delving into. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest. This is flowing right from verses 1 and 2. Because of the reality of the immovable mountain, we know then the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. What the psalmist is describing here is a reign of wickedness. A scepter is a, a symbol, either real or metaphorical, for royal rule and might. A king or a queen's reign, that's what the scepter stands for. Whether political power or military power, whether the, the, the occupation force of a foreign army, or in this case, because of the wickedness involved, the abuse of power of an Israelite king, which sadly, tragically, there were no few. And, and we know that from the historical record. So it's a symbol of rule, but it's more than that. It's also, it stands for a position of influence, the scepter, the scepter. A position of influence. Not just does the king have the ability to set policy, but the king, because of his position, has the ability to have great impact upon the lives of his people. Not just policy, but people. The subjects of, of the kingdom. And so what we're seeing here implied with this, the first and second part of the verse, is where it would seem that Evil is just its having its day. It's running amok. It's running a f- just, just crazy wild where the people's beliefs and commitments are tanking and their ethics and convictions are just twisted and lost. And it's, it's something of a tragedy, this reign of wickedness, and that's the dark reality, and it comes. It does come. But it cannot stay. It cannot endure. The, the, the reign of wickedness will always be surely overthrown. And that's the other part of the psalm. will always be overthrown. Yes, it's a cause for great grief. It ought to be. If our hearts beat in any sense of cadence with the Lord's, it ought to grieve our hearts where we see corruption in the church, where we see orthodoxy and orthoproxy under assault where it would seem that all that there's left is a remnant barely holding on by the skin of its teeth. 
or the edge of its broken fingernails. Oh, yes, that is great cause for grief, but not despair. Never despair because the Lord of the church will never allow that to stand. What does the psalm say? It says there, right there in the first line of verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not, not shall not come. We know that's just blind, that's foolish, that's naive. Yes, of course, those times do come, but not rest. It shall not settle in and make its home upon God's people. Not forever. Not forever. There's another king. There's another scepter in the hand of a much mightier ruler who is on his throne and who is not oblivious to what is going on. Let me, let me give you an example of, of this that, that perhaps might, might help, a very contemporary, very contemporary example. So the state of the evangelical church in America today, a survey, the results of a survey were just released last week. Of, of our beliefs, I'm going to say our, the, the, the evangelical church in, in the North America, okay, our beliefs on the topics of God and sin and salvation and heaven and hell and the church and the Bible, it's a long but pretty good read. Some of it's encouraging, most of it is not. Now, I'm going to give you some, some uh, just a, a few uh, readings on this, a few results from this. And I've I got to stress this. This is not, this is not, what I'm about to read to you are not numbers of the broader culture. That's a whole other su subset of studies. I'm talking about the study where I'm quoting from here in the study is talking about the results of the North American Evangelical Church. Okay? Listen. One-third said Jesus was a great teacher, but He was not God. One-third. One-fifth said the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something which is forbidden in the Bible. One-fifth. One-half. Most people are good by nature. One-half. One-fourth. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It's not objective truth. One-fourth. Now, again, I'll grant you, those are all minority fractions. I get it. They're not the majority, but they're all sizable. I didn't give you one-twenty-fifths in little itty-bitty numbers like that. These are big minorities, sizable minorities. And that is very troubling because, friends, those of you who have been around here more than a year have probably heard me say, damaged doctrine damages people. Damaged doctrine damages people. So we should grieve the reign of this scepter, but not despair. Not despair. Because again, there is another scepter in the hand of another king who is, by the way, on his throne and has promised to make things, all things, new, all things right, and sometimes even gives us a taste of that in this life. 
even in a culture like our own. We're safe in the Lord's care. We need to live out of that, really live out of that. But then that takes us to the, the third point, and that has to do with this. So what happens... What happens as we grapple with the reality of this immovable mountain and that this scepter, as described here in the psalm, will be shattered? What then should happen to the degree that we're grasping that? We then should be a praying people. That's where this psalm takes us. If you keep reading, if you just follow the flow, verses 1 and 2, verse 3, then what we see with verses 4 and 5. To the degree we grasp the realities of verses 1 to 3, we should be a praying people. Let's look at it. Do good, O Lord. See, this is the prayer. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. What do we see here? We see the psalmist laying hold of God's promises with confidence. He's calling for, he's pleading for, blessing upon the good, blessing upon the upright, holding them fast, laying hold of those promises. Now, not to say when he's first, first to the good, to the upright, he's not, not for a second saying that we are saved by our works. That's not the point, but rather we are saved by a faith that isn't work, that does, if it is true saving faith, it will show forth fruit. It will express itself. And that's who he's speaking of here. Truly, people who love and follow the Lord, calling forth, pleading for, blessing upon the good, and also justice upon the evil. Oh, Lord, do not. Be true to yourself. Do not. Turn a blind eye to the evil, the corruption, the unrighteousness, the wickedness. Inside the church, outside the church, don't. Please, don't. Will not the judge of all the world do right? Have you not said that vengeance is yours and not ours? We are looking to you and to you alone. We are not taking it into our own hands, but we are looking to you, the judge of all the earth, to do Right, so the, the psalmist is laying hold of the promises of God and praying them back to him. That's what we see here in, the, in these verses. Not just that, not just laying hold of these promises with confidence, but lifting them up with urgency. Hearts transform will do that. Hearts transform will do that. Laying hold of the promises of God is a mark of of the people of God as they are able to share in the passion of God. Praying His promises with urgency back to Him, knowing the stakes, knowing what is happening, knowing that His his glory, His glory is worth praying for, pleading for, looking for, longing for, a foretaste in this life of what will come in full one day. Yes, we know. We know all things will be made new. We know all things will be made right. Yes, we know that down the road it will come. But we need not just wait. We are told to wait and work. We are told to wait and pray. 
longing for, longing for a glimpse of, a foretaste of His kingdom to come, His will to be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Have you heard that somewhere before? Yeah, it's very much how He's taught us to pray. So as we, as we lay hold, the idea is as we lay hold of these realities of the immovable mountain and the, the, the broken scepter, we then become all the more a praying people. Let, let me show you an illustration of this from Moses' life. You may have heard of him. He was a guy some time ago. The Old Testament speaks of him. Keep your thumb in uh, Psalm 125. Let's go to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, it is something of a, uh, a major passage, to say the least. This is my understatement of the morning. Major passage, to say the least, within the Old Testament, or the Bible as a whole. Exodus chapter 34. Now, just to kind of set the stage as to what has happened here at this point, uh, Israel has been rescued. Israel has been redeemed from slavery, long slavery there in, in Egypt. And the Lord in His grace has spoken to them and revealed to them how it is, what it means to respond to that grace, what it means then if they are grappling with that, what it would look like to live in relationship with their saving, redeeming God. And so He speaks to them and He gives them the Ten Commandments. And pretty shortly thereafter... They then take it upon themselves to craft, a, make this golden calf and bow down and worship to it, spurning everything He has told them and His redeeming love. His holy jealousy burns, burns, and He tells Moses accordingly. And Moses, well, let's pick up. Exodus 34, starting in verse 5. Reading on through verse 9. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. It's, my mind just reels trying to imagine what this was like. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will no, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now... I have found favor in your sight. O oh Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. What is Moses doing? Two radical things here. One is he includes himself in the confession. Right? So it's a corporate confession. Moses standing, confessing on behalf of the people, including our, our, not theirs, ours. He wasn't there, but he says ours. That's a radical thing for us Westerners to grapple with. Here's something else, though, the point. He prays God's promises back to him. You said you are gracious to forgive iniquity and sin. Oh, God. 
do it. He prays God's promises back to him. And that's exactly what we're to do. This is easy, easy enough to teach any child in this room to do. Show them the promises of God and show them how to pray them back to God. It's as simple as sticking your foot in a foothold and pressing up. It's as simple as laying your hand into the rung of a ladder and pulling up. Praying the promises of God back to Him. It's not being cheeky. It's one of the reasons He's given us the promises. To pray them back to Him with humility and boldness. With Patience and certainty. Lord, I I don't know what's right here. I don't know. But I trust you. Would you change this? Change me. I know... I know what you have said you will do. I know who you have said you are. And I'm clinging to that. That's prayer 101. Praying God's promises back to Him. Laying hold of them with confidence and lifting them up with urgency. We are safe in his care. We need to learn what it is to live out of that. Let me, let me end with this, thinking again about his, the, the wonder, the safety, the beauty, the security of his, his care, and, and thinking about the stunts I mentioned earlier. So uh, climbing, climbing. Uh, probably the most strenuous climb I've ever been on was in the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, so this is years and years and years before it was moved inland to get it out of the surf and, and restored and before the Park Service started charging admission. Oh my, the nerve of all things, charging admission to, to this, this thing. So we were on a family vacation. I say we, this is when I was a kid. And so my brother and I were there at the Outer Banks with my parents and we, we were down there at the lighthouse and so we just took off. Uh, my parents didn't know where we went. But we took off uh, and went up all 257 steps which is roughly 12 stories. And it's a pretty steep grade. And there's really nowhere you're supposed to like step aside and pause. You just kind of go, 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 go. So, okay, that's a, that was a strenuous climb. There are far more strenuous, far, more, far harder, higher, rougher climbs than that. So, so mountain trails, no few of you are hikers, I know. Um, you know, a lot of trails, whether it's in the Smokies or uh, the Rockies or whatever it may be because of erosion or just the high traffic on those places, the, the, the gravel, the footing over time gets a little bit trickier as the seasons go by unless somebody gets in there and, and fixes them up a little bit. You know, you, you have all, all this, um, oh dear, was the kind of, oh, never mind, it was a kind of a rock that comes into play there in particular, but it's, it's not that unusual if you're not careful to slip and to fall. 
and depending on the grade and where you are, to slide you know, down a, a steep, steep grade, hundreds, hundreds of feet maybe. There are other types of mountain climbs. It might involve a sheer cliff. And uh, how do you make that kind of an ascent? Well, safely, if it's any great distance and any great height, typically what that involves is a, is a team, a team of climbers that's, that's roped together so that if one falls, yeah, that's a bummer, but it doesn't take the entire team down because there's so many, they're tethered together. And in every case, with a team of climbers roped together like that, there's always a lead climber, a veteran who is experienced and knows what they're doing and who is bound and determined to do whatever it takes to get the team up to where they need to go safely. Friends, here's where I'm going with this. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you have a lead climber. And you are tethered to him. And he will not let you go. Even as perhaps you're squirming around. He will not let you go. You are roped to Jesus if you are his. That's how good his care is. That's how safe we are in his care. Friends, we need to live out of that. Let's pray together. Lord, this journey is completely centered on you. Jesus, you are the one that sets us out on it. It sets our feet moving on the path. You renew our hearts to help us to see our need of the gospel in the way you are the only sufficient one to save us. You are the one who sets us on the path. You are the very goal of the path as we, over time, slowly but surely, in fits and starts, nonetheless, still, still, you are determined to make us more like you. And you are our guide on this journey. Despite us, because of your love for us, ever with us. And we need this assurance, every one of us here in this room, in some way, because it's hard. It's hard. We slip, and so too do the people around us. It's hard. And it's a battle all the way. When we speak of the world, the flesh, and the devil, we are not playing games. It is hard. It is a fight. It is a battle. And Jesus, some of us here this morning are very discouraged and just about ready to cash it in. And we plead with you to take us back to the basics. Psalm 125, basics. You told us it would be hard. You told us there would be times of discouragement. And you've made it clear, though, we need not despair. The mountain is secure. The scepter will be broken. And you call us to, to join together in prayer. We pray for your mercy upon your people this morning. We pray in your name. Amen.